Okay. Hi there. My name is Romy. I'm an alcoholic. I was looking for my unmute button. Um, it's my pleasure to be here with you guys tonight. I, I'm getting a little bit nervous watching that participant's number keep getting a little bit bigger. It's much bigger than what I jumped on. Um, so my sobriety date is April the 24th, 2010. And I still, I grin really big when I say that because I can't freaking believe it. I can't, I can't. The woman that came to you, that came to Alcoholics Anonymous is is not someone who could ever imagine a day without drinking. A day, three hours, and I was shaking apart. It's all I could do. So I want to welcome you all to go on this magical mystery tour of my life, apparently here just today for a little while. And, um, and I want to welcome anyone that's new. I want to welcome anybody that's nearly new, anyone that feels new again, anyone with one foot out of the door, anyone that's thrilled to be here. We all fit. We all fit, you guys taught me that in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've been in pretty much all of those stages throughout my, my tenure here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I just, I can't um, quite put into words the gratitude that I feel every time I get a chance to share for Alcoholics Anonymous, to do service for Alcoholics Anonymous, to work one-on-one -on -one at my kitchen table for Alcoholics Anonymous, just like Evie did with Bill. It's all a privilege, it's all a privilege. And before I join on today with you, I was at my home group meeting and that's every Saturday morning at 10.30 in Rancho Santa Margarita, Southern California, uh, South Orange County, whoop whoop, thank you, Bob. And um, and yes, the Real Housewives live somewhere around us. And, um, but but we're, I haven't seen one in AA meeting yet. Anyway, um, and, <laughs> and I wouldn't tell you if I had. So um, anyway, I was at my home group and we read a story out of the big book because we're a big book um, study group and we and we do study the 164 and then we keep on going into the stories and then we start over again at the blank page at the beginning of the big book. And I love that. I love that blank page. My sponsor reminds me that's what I knew when I got here. Nothing. I was that blank page. And I allowed you and my higher power and Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps and the program and all of it to fill me up and create me all brand new. And it's just such a privilege. And I'm so glad that I was wrong about so many things in life, so many things. So again, if you're new, I welcome you, welcome home, welcome to a brand new way of life, uh, a way that's worth living. I have a life worth protecting today. I have a life worth living. And, and I just, I'm just grateful. Grateful is gonna just have to cover it for now. So, so I'll start from the beginning. Um, as a little kid, I grew up with a lot of anxiety. I grew up in a dysfunctional kind of home. I guess that's the, the word I'm gonna use today. And, um, and uh, mom and dad, not happy with each other, not happy with me or my sister. My sister grew up um, to be, uh, she's a little bit older than me and she was powerful and strong. And I was meek and mild and smaller and younger and scared to death, scared to death, always. And there, there were some scary things happening in the home, but not to, not to the extent that I felt them. My sister and I felt things differently. I've, I've learned through inventory here that it's the way I react to life and the way I perceive life that trips me up, that, that causes me a lot of problem in life. And when I was little, nobody explained that to me. You know, I was just doing the best I could. And I thought that if I was just the best little girl possible, then no one would ever yell at me again. And if I was the smartest kid in school, then no one would make fun of me and I would never be hurt. And I would feel like I belonged. I never felt like I belonged. And I've heard in Alcoholics Anonymous that so many of us come here feeling like that. You know, just a little bit, a little square peg, round hole. If I just, you know, shave this off, do that. I don't know what something, something I need to do something different to fit in. It's just, it's not working, you know? And even as a little kid, I remember looking at all the other little kids 
judging them and, and thinking, you know, I, how, how do they go to brownies and have fun? I was a brownie, a little girl scout, miniature girl, girl scout. And I hated it. I, I just, I didn't fit in. I didn't feel like I could do the crafts the way they could. I didn't look the way they did. It, uh, and um, that doesn't mean that I was a loner all by myself, never had friends because I was this chameleon child and I was going to do whatever you needed me to do to fit in. And um, on the outside, Looking back again through inventory, I'm re-experiencing my childhood that way. Um, I realized I did have the love and affection of a lot of people, but I couldn't feel it. There was a block. There was something in between you and me. And, um, and so I grew up anxious, stomach ache all the time, anxious little kid. Eight years old, we go to the doctor because my mom is thinking something's wrong with this little one. So we go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, she just has a nervous stomach. That's what they coined it. Very, very um, fancy term. And they said that um, there's really nothing physically wrong with her. It's all in her head. And my parent, my mom heard that. And I heard that. And so then that, that sort of solidified for me that there's something wrong up in my head. There's something wrong with me. And every ache, pain or twinge I ever felt after that, um, I got told by my mom that, that it was all in my head. And I'm not saying that to vilify my mom. She had a doctor's you know, permission to say that. And that's what she really believed. And she thought, if, you know, if I say this enough, then maybe it'll just go away. Well, it didn't. And um, so I continued on through my life feeling super, super anxious. Now, uh, my dad um, uh, did drink. My mother did not. And uh, my dad liked to drink beer. And, um, and, uh, and he was an angry man. And, um, and so the smell of beer, even to this day, reminds me of my dad, reminds me of the anger. And I, and I didn't want anything to do with that. I thought, you know, I tasted it once. It was awful. So alcohol just didn't play a part in, in my life. I never wanted anything from it. I, I saw the results um, that I was figuring. My dad liked beer. My dad's not a nice guy. So maybe if I don't like beer, don't touch beer, then I'll be nicer than my father. And, um, you know, this is the logic of a little one. And, um, and I stuck with that for, uh, for a while throughout my life. I, I tried a lot of different things to fit in. I tried the perfectionism. I tried that. And um, that was my program for a while. I tried people pleasing. And, um, and then I, I tried falling in love when I was a teenager in high school. And, and, it, and it cured me. Oh my God, my first boyfriend, I was obsessed with him and the fact that he was nice to me and he seemed to like me. And I thought, I'm fine. This is what I've been missing. I just needed to partner up with somebody. That was, that was it. I needed this, this true love that I had about 15 years old. This is it. This is the real thing. This is what they're talking about. This is, this is it. And then it wore off. And so I needed to get another one. And I did. And, and, I, um, and, and I say this as if I'm extremely worldly and had many, many boyfriends. I had two, I had two whole boyfriends in high school. And that second one I married. And um, because I'm determined, I am, I am not a weak-willed woman. I am going to make this work. And then I decided I was going to be the caretaker, right? So I went from perfectionism to people-pleasing. Now I'm a caretaker of my husband. I married him, I was 19 years old. What the heck? And um, I wasn't pregnant. And, um, you know, he was 21. I was 19. We were going to be adults. And then I thought that's the problem. See, being a child is the problem. I'm going to be an adult and then I'm going to be fine. No one will ever hurt me again. Nothing bad will ever happen to me. And I'll just all of a sudden grow confidence. It will just happen one day in my sleep. I will wake up and be a brand new person. Didn't work. And that marriage didn't work. And we were both too young and I was too needy. And I expected this poor man to serve me in a way that that would make me feel complete. I needed him. I needed that. I needed to feel okay. And it just wasn't working. And once the husband wasn't working and then I decided food might work. I, I tried everything 
and did not find the magical alcohol for a little while. And I will get there shortly because I know this is an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but it's just that out of placeness, that searching for something, that, that something that was inside me that I just thought was wrong or bad, low, low self-esteem, just couldn't figure it out. I'm gaining weight, hand over fist because of this eating problem I've now discovered. Um, I used to starve myself when I was a little kid, afraid to throw up with a nervous stomach. And then all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, I gave myself permission to eat. And by the way, when I was afraid as a little child, I thought I was going to throw up in front of somebody. And, um, and then as it grew, my anxiety grew, I thought I was going to die. And I want you to know that in my brain, both of those were just about the same on the scale. Throwing up in front of somebody or dropping dead. I was just equally afraid of both of them. I live with a level of anxiety that I could not explain. I still can't. And it still, by the way, knocks on my door once in a while. And um, so I, I have all this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm now uh, married, not working. Let's have a child because that's another good idea. And, um, and that was my last attempt to um, fill my hole with something, fill that God-sized hole that I discovered that's what it's called here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and I love that baby girl. Oh my goodness, that baby girl was everything. And again, I was cured for just a little while. I said, I don't need, I don't need to overeat. I don't need to look for anything else. Oh, I was just obsessed. I loved her so much. And, and, and she was my everything. And, and I, and I, and I watched her and, and, and um, learned about her and I was giving, 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 and I was still dying inside. It wasn't working. And my daughter used to come to speaker meetings with me. She's a grown woman now. And, um, and she would come to speaker meetings. And this was hard to share in the beginning about her. And um, I, I, she was 14 years old when I got sober. And so she's coming to meetings with me, hearing, you know, listening to me tell my story, you know, on the occasions that I get sent, she'd sit right in the front row. And I'd say, so that baby, I said, she was amazing. And I said, but she didn't fix me. And I looked down at my daughter and she's like, it's okay. You know, she's heard this before. And um, yeah, so she didn't fix me because she can't. The husband couldn't. I didn't know any of that stuff yet. You know, here I am making everybody else responsible for me. Everybody but me. And I didn't know. I just didn't know so much. I came here. I didn't know. And, and once that, that, um, that, that, that baby girl of mine, I'm still trying so hard to be a good mom, a good wife. My husband um, is seeking um, outside affection and, um, and that marriage eventually implodes. And I'm not again vilifying him. I didn't know how to be a wife. I didn't know how to be a half of a marriage. All I knew was just, I was like a vampire. And I just, I think I sucked the life out of him. I really do. And, um, and I've had the opportunity to make amends to him somewhat recently. And it was actually quite a moving experience. It's, it's amazing what we get to do here, how we get to clean up our past, how we get to tell the truth to those people we thought um, we would never be able to say that to. Alcoholics Anonymous has grown me up big and strong. Um, that big, strong grown-up that I always wanted to be, I didn't become until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was just playing grown-up for so long. So after my marriage imploded, I found another someone. And, um, and I'm pleased to report that that's someone I am still with today. My second husband, amazing man, has been through me, through with me, through thick and thin. And, um, but literally with all that weight gain. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, I'll have you know that we're going to be married 19 years um, soon, and um, but but you'll if you if you're doing the math, if you went back to my sobriety date, right? I, I've been sober 11 of those years, so you can do the misery math. You can probably imagine what happened in that life, and it's it's not always been uh, sunshine and rainbows for either one of us. Um, but we are together today, and Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to be a good wife, and um, so I did find um, my new love and alcohol at just about the same time. I had neighbors that were um, drinkers, but they were, they were classy drinkers. They drank wine. 
right? And they had the right wine with the right food and the champagne to start if there were hors d'oeuvres. And I just went over there thinking, I don't know, you know, I had a sip of wine once before or two, you know, when I was younger, 21, and I thought, mm, it doesn't do anything for me. In fact, it makes me feel a little something. And if I feel a little something that I'm not 100% in control, and I couldn't deal with that. I couldn't deal with that. I needed to be on, I need to be in control because I need to know what you need from me so that I can be that at all times with all different people. And um, very busy in here. And um, alcohol dulled that and that terrified me because I needed to be sharp. I needed to, you know, like as if there was a war coming and I needed to be ready for it. That level of anxiety that I just couldn't explain. So these, these neighbors of ours, we go over there and we try to be good friends at this party and I'm talking and not realizing how much I was drinking and I'm kind of choking it down and I kind of had fun and I thought, this is interesting. So the next weekend we went over there to another dinner party and I thought, let's see if this works again. And it did and it worked better. And I thought, oh my God, what is this? And why did nobody tell me? Why did nobody tell me that this was the answer to everything in my entire life? I sat at that dinner party, anxiety completely gone. I don't care what anybody thinks about me anymore. In fact, I remember sitting there going, am I leaning in this? Job? I don't even care. I, I don't care. I don't care what I look like. I don't care what I sound like. People around me are seeing, they're, they're so nice. And these friends of ours that are having this dinner party, they're like, oh, wait till Romy has a couple of drinks. She's really funny. <gasps> that was permission. Oh my God, that was permission. And I was like, well, you know, sometimes I don't, I think I'm kind of funny. And then I'm like, but they're telling me that I am and I'm entertained. They're like, oh, Romy, tell the story about this and tell them about that. And they're, you know, and they're inviting people over and it's happening like on a regular basis. And I felt like kind of like a little rock star, like oh, I'm on, oh, this is fun. This is, this is my show. This is what's happening. And then of course, guess what? Just the show wasn't enough. I needed this feeling in my own home when it's just me and my family or eventually just me. I needed that thing that I thought I needed to perform. I needed it to live. That Chardonnay that I didn't like the taste of at the beginning. In fact, it was too dry and too like, oh, what is this? You know, I'm like, is there something a little sweeter? So my friends are actually buying like white Zinfandel and all kinds of like sweeter wines for me. And, um, and you know, sure enough, I graduated to the Chardonnay, no problem. I didn't care what they were pouring, just pour it, I'll drink it. We, we're, it's going down, this is happening. And I'm buying the Chardonnay um, and I think I'm a grown up now. I think this is what grown up ladies do. They drink wine, they stand up straight, their shoulders are down, they are self-assured, though with maybe a glib sort of way about them, you know? And, um, and I just, oh, I just, I wanted that with everything in me, I wanted that. And alcohol worked for me. It worked for me until it didn't. It worked for me until it turned on me. And I have to tell you, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And I only got a few good years. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, <laughs> I was a little angry about that because I would hear some of you tell your stories about drinking to blackout for 20 years. And I was jealous. I was jealous. Only an alcoholic gets jealous that you all had more time drinking out there than I did. Now I'm not paying attention to the part where you're saying yes, and I'm ruining my family and I'm ruining jobs and I'm hurting people and I'm driving drunk and I had to go to jail. And I'm just, but you had 20 years. You had 20 years. I had eight. What the hell? And um, so that's, that's just, uh, that's the arrogance and the insanity of my alcoholism. So back to that drinking consistently all the time. Now my husband's starting to notice and my second husband, and he is starting to just kind of put his hand on mine under the table, like, like, honey, just rein it in, just rein it in. 
And, and I remember looking at him like, oh no, don't touch me. Don't say that to me. And don't you dare take away this opportunity from me. I need this, right? That was not said out loud. That was daggers at him. That was daggers at him. There were other people at this dinner party. We couldn't have that conversation. And I'm drinking at home and I'm buying all the wine here in California. You can buy the wine in this giant six pack from any grocery store, any time of day or night, seven days a week. And, and, and you buy the six pack because you're going to save 10%. And um, I was not buying it to save the 10%. I was buying it because that's how much I needed to drink. And I drank between three and four bottles of Chardonnay every night. And then I drank more. I still can't believe, I can't believe the quantities of alcohol that I poured down my throat. And again, not the cleverest girl I am. I didn't realize that hard alcohol would have gotten me there much faster. I would drink that. If it was at your party, I would drink that sometimes. I would put the tequila in my Diet Mountain Dew can because you can't tell, right? You can't, I can sit outside and watch my daughter ride her bike in the street. I'm being a good mom. I'm drinking my Diet Mountain Dew um, with tequila in it. it. Tastes like a little uh, redneck uh, margarita. And, um, and uh, I thought I was being a good mom. I thought I was a better mom because I'm calm. I'm not always on her. I'm not, I'm not yelling. I'm not angry. I'm calm, right? Well, I'm also irresponsible. I'm also really not looking out for her welfare. And, and, I, and, I, and I can't really believe, um, I still can't believe the person that the alcohol turned me into because it came to you, I came to alcohol, I'm sorry, with that low self-esteem and that perfectionism problem and there's something wrong with me. And then I started drinking and then I was all better, right? This is, this is the mid-story sum up. And then I kept drinking and I got worse and that low self-esteem turned into self-loathing. There was something much uglier that came up inside me once that alcohol stopped working. And in order to shut that thing up, that, that horrible voice, that mean thing that was inside me, in order to shut that up, the only thing I could do was drink more. And I'm drinking and I'm lying and I'm drinking and I'm hiding it. And I'm looking for opportunities to drink 24 seven. And I just can't believe that I've turned into this person and I'm starting to realize that I'm an alcoholic. But I don't want that label. And I have no idea why. But I just don't want you to hang that label on me. Just don't do that. I'm going to get over this. Didn't realize alcohol is a progressive disease that we don't get over. We can manage it here in Alcoholics Anonymous and live a happy, joyous, and free life. But at the time, I had no clue. I thought I, thought I would die that way. And I didn't want it on my, on my death certificate. I didn't want that for my daughter. I didn't want that to be my legacy because to me, alcoholic and loser were intertwined and they could not be separated. They could not be separated. And I was so wrong about that. I was so wrong about that. And I'm so glad that you guys taught me that right up front. So I'm drinking to excess at home and I'm drinking copious amounts of alcohol. It's hard to get up and go to work in the morning. And by the way, I work with children. I work in, in the health office of a public school. I'm like the school nurse, but I'm a layman and I don't have a degree, but I am in charge of the diabetics and their insulin and my seizure patient kids and those kids with the EpiPens that might at any moment, you know, have an anaphylactic reaction to peanuts and I might need to be there and take care of them. And I'm shaking apart because I'm having alcohol withdrawal every morning. And then that's when I decided my husband and I, that we are going to do something about this. And we decide we're going to do what the internet says. We're going to cure it. My husband, my codependent husband, who's a faithful member of the 
family group of Al-Anon right now. And he has been since I got here. And, um, and we thought just you and me, honey, we can do it. We're going to do it. And, and so, so we looked on the internet and we said, okay, you've got to lessen the amount of, of alcohol that you're drinking. You've got to do it over this three day span of time. And if you do something wrong on the third day, you are going to have a Gromwell seizure and, um, you know, good luck to you. And, and so we did that. We followed that little Google program that we, that we read about. Now, the problem being all I did was lie and hide all of my alcohol. So my husband, is in this, you know, this endeavor with me, but he has no idea how much I'm drinking. So when he's telling me and he's giving me the alcohol now, because he's, he's cutting me down. Right. But, um, he had no idea, no idea. So this, this body was thinking this is cold Turkey. So this, this titrate down situation that we were doing wasn't working well. And, um, because I, I drank so much more than he had any clue of. And so guess what? On that third day, I did have that normal seizure. He was running me a bath as all good codependent husbands do. And I was on the bed, reading a book, eating a popsicle, um, eat, pray, love was the book. And, um, and, and I, that's the last thing I remember. And then I woke up to paramedics all around me. And that was my first introduction to that psych ward, to that hospital, to that let's try and get better here medically time. And I was on the second floor of our local um, hospital, Laguna Beach. Oh my God, I have never been in a, in a hotel room that had the view that this place has. And, um, and, I, and I, I just, I couldn't believe first of all that I was there, but I was so glad that someone was taking care of me because remember my MO is somebody else must solve the problems that are going on in side of me. So here I am in this beautiful place in Laguna Beach and I'm, I'm mortified. I'm mortified, but, but slightly thrilled that someone else is going to solve the problem that is me. And, and they tried. And I was on this dual diagnosis floor. There's two floors in Laguna Beach hospital that deal with alcoholism and drug addiction. And I was on the second floor, the softer, easier, gentler ways section. And they had all kinds of classes. And I thought, oh my gosh, these are my people. And I'm going to take your yoga and your stretching and your time management. And we're going to go to therapy and talk about poor little old me and it's going to be fantastic. Fantastic. And you're, they're just going to, they're going to just, just placate me and, and, and all woe is me. And, and they got it, man. If you had my life, I'd drink, you know, you'd drink too. And they said, yes, Romy, you're right. You poor little thing. And you've got depression and you've got anxiety and let's give you lots of meds for all that stuff. And we're going to just solve it all. And then you're not going to need to drink anymore. And uh, I thought, yay. And I met friends there. And some of them are friends today in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's amazing. And, um, and, and, I, and I thought, this is fantastic. So, so I went home and, um, and, I, and I went to their aftercare program and, you know, no inpatient or anything like that. A weekend in the hospital and then it's aftercare and all those fun little classes. And then I started to get restless, irritable and discontent. And I hated keeping track of my days because it was like, oh, I'm only as good as the day on the calendar. Really? Like I'm a human being, you know, like some human beings are alcoholics, right? Wasn't Steinbeck an alcoholic? And he did some of his best work. I am not an author. I have no talent for writing. And why I decided that I'm going to be a, that I'm just like Steinbeck. And that's my, my reason for continuing my drunkenness. I don't know. This is, this is the craziness of the alcoholism. So I'm restless, I'm irritable. I'm discontent. I'm mad at my family. I remember throwing Tupperware all around the kitchen, trying to rearrange everything. I'm going to clean this house and I'm going to get better didn't work. So I relapsed. I did. And then I lied and I, and I hid and it got worse. Absolutely worse. I will tell you the only thing that ever I ever got trying to stop drinking on my own was worse. Case closed. That's the only thing I ever got was worse. It says it in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I hadn't read it yet. I didn't know that was there. And so for the next 18 months, that was 2008 when I had that seizure till 2008 or till 2010, April, 
those are the mis most miserable 18 months of my life. I just got worse and I did worse things. And to cover it up, I drank more. And I was stuck on that hamster wheel, stuck circling the drain of the toilet. And I'm getting sicker and sicker and I'm losing weight and I'm bruising all over the place and my hair is falling out, but I still drag myself to work. And I still try to be a mom. And I still try to be a wife and I still try to put on appearances and I'm shaking all the time. I needed alcohol every three hours or I would shake apart. The morning drink became a part of my life. I thought it would never, ever, ever happen until one day I did it. I just said, what the hell? Let me give it a shot. And then I realized at that moment that this makes everything easier. Now I don't have to worry about the shakes in the morning. I don't have to worry about anything like that. And it was awful. It was absolutely awful. And I'm starting to now I have to call into work because sometimes the shakes won't stop and the alcohol won't make them stop in the morning. And sometimes too much alcohol makes them stop. So now I know I can't go to work because they're going to smell it on me. And I don't want to get caught and I don't want to be an alcoholic and I don't want anyone to know. I thought I would die with these secrets. I thought I would die because of these secrets. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and you shared your secrets with me so that I didn't have to die with mine. And I am so grateful to each and every one of you who have ever shared in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because I hear you. We hear you and we heal each other. We are storytellers here and we are wounded healers. And that is what we do. And that is our purpose and it's our calling. And I'm so grateful for it. So here we go. Getting sicker, getting sicker. I had alcoholic hepatitis, but I didn't know it. My husband says, we've got to get you better. He finally looked at me with terror in his eyes one day because I was having a hallucination. I thought my daughter was in the room and I was talking to her, but she wasn't even there. And my daughter, my son, my, excuse me, I don't have a son. My husband was looking at me and he had fear in his eyes when before for so long he had anger and he had disgust and he had mistrust, but he'd never had fear in his eyes. And I saw that fear in his eyes and I knew, I knew it was over. And it was time to do something. And it was a different feeling than I had that first time. And so he took me back to that hospital where they abruptly put me on the fourth floor with the drug addicts and the alcoholics. I still had a bit of an ego and I'm still looking down at other people, even though I'm in the gutter. And, and they put me there and I needed to be there. I needed to be there. And they ran all their medical tests and they told me how sick I was and they taught me about the disease of alcoholism. And they tell me that I'm not a bad person trying to get well. That's never gonna work. And that's not what you are. You have a disease. You have a disease that compels you to drink. And it's gonna doom you to die if you don't right now do something about it. And so I remember my husband calling me, you know, pay phone, right? Rehab or not rehab, but detox, whatever. I'm in, payphone and he calls me and he says I talked to the doctors there you know they're giving me the information they're giving him the information and he says they tell me that if if I bring you home you're gonna die he says they they told me that I have to send you away that you have to go to this this rehab and I'm like but what about my job and what about Shannon and what about her dad you know I don't want to tell my ex-husband that I'm an alcoholic I, I couldn't imagine anything worse he said you can't come home and I remember I still find it horrible of me and sort of slightly comical. And I'm sure some of you would understand. I remember thinking, how dare you? How dare you do this to me? And I hung up on that sweet man who stayed up all night long researching rehab and where am I going to send her? What are we going to do to save Romy? And I thought, how dare you? And then the next morning, 
I, I went and complained to my group, right? We're doing group therapy there, detox. And, and I said, I can't do this. I can't go here. They want to send me to the desert, to this rehab. And I just don't, I can't, I can't, I need, my daughter needs me as if I'm productive in my life. And, um, and, and they said, go talk to someone. So she works in accounts payable here in the hospital, in the bowels of the hospital. Talk to her. She went to that rehab. She's going to something. She, maybe she'll have something for you. Fine. So I get in the elevator and I storm down there. Well, I guess you can't storm down an elevator. Anyhow, I went down there and, and I got to this woman and and uh and i and she's in the in the accounts payable department at this beautiful hospital and she's sitting at her desk and she has a little picture on her desk that i can't take my eyes off and it's a picture of her and two young girls and i'm guessing they're her daughters and i asked her are those your kids and she said yes i said do they know you're an alcoholic and she looked at me like i was crazy she said yeah really she said romy she said we get better we get better and I thought, wow, I didn't know that. I thought if I admit I'm an alcoholic and I go to this place, I'm going to have to give up my job and I'm going to have to give up any respect anyone will ever have for me again. My daughter will never forgive me. My husband will put up with me. Maybe they'll take me out on Sundays on a leash and just say, don't talk about the drinking. She's fine. Just... And I thought, I, I just, I couldn't imagine. I didn't know any sober alcoholics. I'd never seen one. I'd never seen one. And here she was. And she said, you go to that rehab. That is your shot. She said, you take it, you go there and you do everything they tell you to do and you will get everything back. And then some, this is the beginning. This isn't the end. And I couldn't believe it, but then I could, I was like, okay, she was my Eskimo. She was that person that if I hadn't talked to her, I don't know if I didn't come. So I went to that rehab. And I did everything, everything they told me to do. I was that nerd in rehab that nobody likes. I'm doing the writing. I'm doing the reading. I'm opening my book. I'm, they watched Law and Order, my rehab. You know that clang on that TV show where I think it's prison doors clanging? I think I hear that today and I'm like, rehab. But it's a happy memory because it was the beginning. It was the beginning for me. It was the beginning. And then I had to do those two really big things in rehab. I had to face my husband. And I had to face my daughter. And I had to admit what was going on with me. And they taught us how to do it. It was all very structured. We had these family groups. And I'm blessed that my daughter and my husband both came to this family group. Again, she's a freshman in high school and she opted to take a week off of high school. Now, okay, granted, a lot of people might have done that, but she came. And I'm just going to give her all the credit in the world. She's saying, oh, she gave up high school for me for a week. And so she came and, and they came together. They had to stay at a hotel. They told us not to talk to each other unless, you know, if we saw each other on campus only when we're in those family groups and I, this is all weird and everything. And, um, and my girlfriends in the little hall of mine, they're, they're as close to me now as sisters, these total strangers. I don't even know what's happening to me. I'm loving everybody. I'm trusting everybody. Everybody, it's all beginning to happen and it feels really real. It feels really real. So there we are in this family group and I had to, to do my session with my daughter first and we sat knee to knee. And then there's a circle of trust, right? All the folded chairs around us. Everybody's sitting in these circles, these families, and we're sitting knee to knee. And I had to tell her about my alcoholism. I had to admit to my daughter that I was an alcoholic. And, um, and I said, and I had to tell her, this is what they told me. Tell her about the disease. Tell her, tell her it's progressive and fatal, but you're going to do everything you can to work, you know, to, to get better and to treat this disease. And I was like, that sounds scary for a mom to tell a child that. And they said, do it. And I said, okay, because I remember my Eskimo in Laguna Beach. And she said, do everything they say. And so I'm like, fine. And I did. And I sat there, needed to do with my knee to knee with my teenage daughter. And I told her the truth about me and my alcoholism, even though I didn't quite understand what it all meant. And she looked at me. And she had to tell me her truth. And they told me be strong because she might be angry and she's 
she is very well justified in that anger. Everything she feels is valid, you take it. You sit there quietly with love for your daughter and you listen to what she has to say. It's not about you. Once you say your part, it's about her. And I was terrified. I was so terrified. She told me that she hated me and she was disgusted by me and that she never would forgive me. And none of that came to pass. I was wrong. I was wrong. She said to me, I never knew you were an alcoholic. I saw you drink sometimes, but because I was a closet hiding, lying, cheating drinker, she didn't see it always. She said, I never put the dots together. I didn't do, she says, I just thought you didn't like me anymore. And the moment she said that, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I thought I was hiding the biggest secret from her in the world, the biggest, ugliest secret. And instead I was, I was teaching her and showing her something very different that was very much not true. So when she said that to me, I knew, I knew right then I could get better. I knew right then I was gonna work to get better for her so that she never ever has to think that not for a moment of her life ever again, because that's worse. That was worse. And I thought nothing was worse than being an alcoholic, but having my daughter think I didn't like her anymore, so after she said that, drop that bombshell at me and I'm nodding and I'm, and she's got crocodile. She's not very emotional like that. And she's got crocodile tears running down her face. And she said, so mom, she says, I'm glad you're an alcoholic. <laughs> and she started laughing and I could start laughing and we both could start healing that day. She says, and I just want to go to the grocery store with you because I pulled out of her life. So absolutely, completely the lying to myself and saying I was still a good mom because I still managed to make some kind of dinner, you know, and put it on the table and then retreat to my room where I could drink. And I just, I knew, I knew it was going to be okay. And the way she hugged me, the way she hugged me, I knew it was going to be okay. And I knew if I had love of my daughter and love of my husband, who we had a very similar experience in that family, family group. Um, my biggest problem with my husband, and my dad was phrased all wrong. My biggest fear in the relationship with my husband at that moment at our rehab was I didn't know how we were going to pay for this rehab that he chose. It's a very, very expensive one. And I thought it was a very stupid decision on his part to send me to the expensive one where I'm sure there were cheaper ones. I'm a bargain, I'm a bargain girl. And, um, and I told him about that. And then I said, I'm just so worried that, that my disease and this problem has put us, you know, into bankruptcy or whatever. I don't know how we're going to pay this bill. And I don't know why you chose it. And he said to me, Romy, he said, I thought about it. He said, you know, there were other, other programs out there, but I, I thought this one would be the best for you because I know you really well. And, and certain things here I thought would jive with you. He says, and you know what? He said, it's the price of a life. And I'm willing to pay it. And I thought, oh my God, oh my God, this man that I said, how dare you? This man that I pushed away, just like I did my daughter. I just couldn't feel their love because alcohol, there was a sea of alcohol in between me and them. And I knew then again, I, I'm, I can do this. I want to do this. I want to do this now. I believe this. I believed you. I believed everyone in that rehab that said that they went to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I mean, the staff members that are because they were all recovering alcoholics. They said, they said that Alcoholics Anonymous changed their lives, gave them back a life. And I remember that from the lady in the hospital in Laguna Beach. And I said, okay. So I went home from that rehab and I sought you. I found 
you. And I literally followed a big book to my first meeting because I was parked in that church parking lot and I was scared to death, got out of rehab on Friday night and Saturday morning was my first meeting. And thank God that book is large and thank God it's blue and yellow and really bright because this woman had it under her arm in the parking lot and she was walking to the meeting. I don't know. Honestly, I've been sitting there for like moments and moments and moments thinking, I don't know where to go on this church campus. I don't know what's going to happen. And she got out and she had the book and I followed her. At a, at a discreet distance. And I followed her and I went into that meeting and my life has been different ever since then. I worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and I believed you. I believed you. Steps one, two, and three, they told me I was powerless. They told me I needed to have a relationship with a higher power. And that was good news to me because I borrowed one from someone in rehab. Somebody in H&I came to our rehab and this man told this amazing story of my rehab. And he says, and if you haven't found a higher power yet, you can borrow mine. And he slammed the podium and I was like, and I didn't have any kind of relationship with any kind of God other than the scary God from like some child, I don't know, Sunday school fantasy of mine. And, um, and I thought I'm going to borrow it. And I want you to know that I borrowed that higher power that day and I've never given it back. I've never given it back. I just grew it. I grew it. Step two taught me that I, that higher power could be anything I want it to be. It could be loving. What if, what if there was a God, an energy, a something out there that created me that was on my side, that wanted to help me, that wanted me to stay sober. Oh my God. And, and, and I could call on that something and it would help me. Amazing. Step three, had to make that decision to turn my will and my life over to that something that I couldn't see. You know what? That was actually less scary than trusting human beings for me because human beings I found sort of fallible. And so I thought I can do that. You know, if, if you told me to believe in the tooth fairy, I would have done it. I would have done it. I believed you. Never believed anybody else in my life. Didn't believe my husband and my daughter when they told me that they love me. And you've already now heard how much they love me. I couldn't feel it. But I believe you, perfect strangers, this family we have in Alcoholics Anonymous, this fellowship, and the things you shared, you said out loud what I only thought of inside. And then you said with a smile on your face, how you found solutions to these living problems. Oh my gosh, steps four and five, tell the freaking truth in step four. Step five, tell it to somebody else. Oh, ouch, scary, scary. But I worked for a thorough step three. So four and five were a little bit easier than I was afraid of in the beginning when I read those big scary steps on the wall. And I remember, I just remember what you tell me one day at a time, one day at a time. Don't worry about step eight. We're on step four. Just do it. Do the work. Stay where you are. Where are your feet? Do it today. Today. Just do it for today. Okay. Step six and seven. Now I've got a list from my sponsor. Thank you very much of all my character defects. Time to work on those. And you taught me that I have to not only be willing to change, that's what I'm in charge of, but be willing to be changed. And that's where my higher power comes in. And that's where I need to summon all the humility that I've developed up into step seven. And I've got to double down on that humility. I've got to be willing to be changed. And all those character defects that I'm using and abusing, and that's all service to me, my ego self. I'm trying to preserve and protect my ego self, the face that I show the world. That's what those character defects are there. And I was taught now called synonymous in the most loving way. What if? You lay down those character defects. God will replace them with something even better that will be not only of use to you, but to him and to others. What if you could live your life in service to others? What would that be like? Oh my God, I think that sounds like a better deal. I think it does. So my next order of business is steps eight and nine, which are the first steps that truly are about other people. Before it was all just me making, making peace with myself, my disease, my God, and my mistakes. Now it's about you. Now I need to go back and make amends for those things that I did that I am not proud of, those things that I did 
shameful things, hurtful things. I need to make it right with other people. And I did that. And some of them took a while. That one with my ex-husband took a while. I am 11 years sober now. I made that amends a couple months ago. And it just, the circumstances just weren't right. And there was some fear involved. I will be perfectly honest. And, um, and then steps 10, 11, and 12 is where I live today. And I am so grateful. You guys gave me a design for a living. I've had a few sponsors in my, in my sobriety, and I'm so grateful to each and every one of them. I've had many sponsees in my sobriety, and I'm grateful for each and every one of them. For every relationship I can build and grow, and sometimes growing apart, sometimes someone leaves, someone moves, someone's got a different path. You guys teach me the ebb and flow of life, and life isn't perfect. Just because I'm sober doesn't mean that nothing bad's ever going to happen to me again, and that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted a force field just between me and the world, right? And I thought, just enough God, enough prayer, maybe I'll get there. Maybe enough sobriety, and I'll get, and doesn't work that way, and today I'm glad for that. Because if I give a force field up there, yes, the bad stuff can't come in, but so also am I missing the good stuff, and I want the good stuff. I want the good stuff. So if I'm going to let the good stuff in, that door swings both ways. The bad stuff's going to come too. But me, who I am in that storm, when it happens, that's what's different. I tell you today, I have the same husband, the same daughter, the same home. Everything is the same on the outside. But my insides are completely different. And it's because I finally was willing to be wrong. I was willing to open my mind and listen to new ideas. I was willing to welcome a higher power into my life. And I do, I do spend time in prayer and meditation every single day because you taught me that step 11 is not extra credit. Prayer and meditation, it says, not one or the other. It says both, and I do both, and I've been blessed by that. And then service. To me, service is where it's at. I've been of service since I first walked into Alcox and I was kind of scared to death. I did not want my old life back. And you guys kept telling me, if you don't give it away, you can't keep it. I'm like, I don't even know what I have. I don't know what you're talking about. And I thought, what do I do? How do I be of service? You know, I'll be the chip girl. I'll be literature girl. I'll make the coffee. I'll do it. I'll do it all. But I didn't have enough sobriety yet. Here in California, you need six months of sobriety to have all those high titles and things like that. So I went to go help other women at a detox and it was amazing and terrifying and it changed my life. And since then I've been in service. And when I get busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, I get better. That's the joy. When I get busy, I get better. And every time something unfortunate happens in my life, another service opportunity arises. And I want you to know that beautiful daughter of mine, she's going through something right now. She's an adult now. And, and in 2018, she decided she didn't want anything more to do with me and my husband. And she removed herself from our lives. And it really is my, it's my biggest heartache. It is. But I don't live in that heartache today. I carry it. I do. But I also carry this great big love for my daughter. And I know one day, one day she's going to come back. She's going to come around. She's going to work out whatever she's going through. And she's going to come back. And you know what she's going to find? She's going to find a woman of grace and dignity of Alcoholics Anonymous, full of love and full of joy and full of forgiveness. She's not going to find me angry and bitter. And that's because every day. In prayer, I ask God to protect my love for my daughter. Keep it beautiful and pure like the day you gave it to me. Help me grow it strong and beautiful so when Shannon comes back for it, she'll find it in its untouched state. And I know that. But Alcoholics Anonymous saved me through that. And I cried and I cried and I cried. And my home group was there for me. And my sponsor was there for me. And on those days in the beginning when I couldn't pray for my daughter, my sponsor said, that's okay, I'll pray for you. I will pray for that girl. And I also learned that in Alcoholics Anonymous, if my daughter isn't here with me, I can always help yours if they need help. I can help my sponsees. I can be a spiritual mother of sorts to all kinds of people. And I do have two cats, so I'm still a mom. 
and, and Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me everything. It's taught me everything. The biggest, best part of me is Alcoholics Anonymous. And I will be forever grateful to each and every one of you and anyone I've ever met in Alcoholics Anonymous for all that you've taught me. And you've taken me from the scrap heap and you've put me in this position of serenity and joy. I really can be happy, joyous, and free. It works. It really does is my favorite quote. It's also the shortest paragraph in the big book for all of you AA trivia nerds. Um, it does. I never thought anything would work. I never thought I would get better, but this does. It does. And I'm so grateful. And I'm so grateful that I'm here today. And thank you so, so much for inviting me. And thank you for letting me share. Romy, that was awesome. Um, I love the gratitude you have for being wrong. Uh, because I feel the exact same way. So my personal